Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Holy Trembling. Our generation has cultivated quite the knack for belittling and diminishing the Word of God. So this message delves into the reason why every book of the Bible, but more so focuses in on the book of Proverbs, why it is so vital to the Christian life. For it is the very mighty ruling wisdom of God which should cause us to bend our knee before the awesome holiness of our King's maxim. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Oh, Father. Everything that you are and everything you have and possess is what we need. But we couldn't get it because of the barrier between us and you. But you've made a way in and through Jesus Christ for us to access the fullness of the Father. Everything that you desire to give us is given to us through your Son, Jesus. And I pray that today we would grab a hold of that unlike we've ever grabbed a hold of it before. I pray that you would tutor our souls. Lord, if there's any stoniness in our hearts or in our minds this morning, towards truth, I pray that it would be removed, that there would be a sensitive spiritual material placed in its stead, that we'd be able to hear and to feel and to know the things of heaven, the things of your kingdom. Precious Jesus, may you be glorified in our midst. We ask this in your name. Amen. This is quite a challenging message for me to give. And not for the typical reasons that some of my messages are challenging. It's not because I'm nervous to give it. It's, I've been trying to articulate it to myself all week. I've been trembling before this reality all week and been struggling. It's like I'm grasping it, but then it's, you ever had truths that are just, they're in your grip and then they slip away? It's like a uh, wet bar of soap. It's sort of the way this message is. And so... One of my desires is that, that I, would, I would be able to firmly grip it and that we'd be able to make the exchange this morning and you'd be able to grip it as well without it just falling uh, <clears throat> to the ground. I am, there's certain things that I'm going to do in this message that are completely, if you want to say it, they're illegal in the modern Christian system. You're just not supposed to give a message like I'm about to give, not because of its content, but because of how I'm going to deliver it. I have about, oh, I don't know, 10 words that are impossible to pronounce in one message. And that could be extremely intimidating to you, but I, I want you to choose ahead of time not to be intimidated. Okay, I'm going to do my best to explain the terms that I'm bringing up because I'm, I have some Hebrew words and then I'm even throwing in some Greek words to add a little sparkle uh, to the message. But... Each of these words is extremely important in their houses for some very critical ideas. You see, in the English language, we struggle to say certain things that are articulated in the original language. And so in the process, to go back to the original language is it's not always advisable. You know, if you can articulate it in English very clearly with words that everyone understands, that's what we want. And so I'm going to have to take a little time and explain you to some words that you might not be used to, and then hopefully make it simple, 
Okay, so my goal isn't to try and sound intelligent. It's to try and communicate an idea that is absolutely life-changing and profound. Uh, this, this particular message has gone through many titles. Uh, it ended up with Holy Trembling as the title, which is a good title. Uh, my very long title, which it was going to be the longest title Eric Ludy has ever had on a message, was Foolishness Bound Up in the Heart of the Church. Uh, I passed on that one, even though that one fits, uh, by the way. Holy Trembling. Let me give you some scriptures on the idea of trembling. There's a lot. If you study the word trembles, trembleth, uh, trembling, there's actually a lot in scripture on this. This concept of beholding majesty and being struck with awe. When you are struck with awe, there is a shaking of the soul. There is a reality of how opposites you are than the holy, holy, holy one. And yet, whose presence are you in? And so therefore, just as Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, the first thing that happened is he, he was exposed. He says, woe is me. That's the first response to seeing holiness. Many of us spend a lot of time in the word of God but do not tremble. Are we really seeing the holy, holy, holy God in the word of God? Because when you see it, you tremble before the word of God. So here's just a compilation. You'll notice there's a couple uh, verses from Psalms and a couple from Isaiah. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. Tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. There's a key line. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. And so let's do a little inventory of our soul. There's three different orientations you can have towards the word of God. One is from above, as I would say, roosting from above with a compassionate gaze upon the poor, archaic text of Scripture. It needs help. It's been around so long. It's been mishandled and misinterpreted for so long that you are going to come in and rescue it. And you're going to diagnose its ills. And you're going to come in and help it make it along. It's limping, and so you provide it the cane of yourself and your own understanding. Coming at the scriptures from above, because if you're coming at the scriptures from above, there's no trembling there. It seems really nice, and you're being kind to the text and patting it and saying, oh, oh, poor thing. And then there's the friend, where you come along, here's the text description, you come along, and stick your arm around it. You're a buddy, you're a chum with the scriptures. However, when you have a buddy, your buddy doesn't command you what to do. If your buddy comes up to you and commands you what to do, you, you take offense to that. You've got to be kidding. You're a buddy. Buddies can encourage you. They can pat you on the back and say, well, you know, well, you might want to consider walking this way. But a buddy doesn't have authority in your life. He's a buddy. So is Scripture a buddy to you? Are you just a friend to Scripture? You esteem it. You really like it. And you'd say, you know what? What can I do for you, buddy? In other words... It's not a bad orientation towards it. It's better than the you know, roosting from above. However, if you're a buddy of Scripture, you're not trembling. There's a third option, and that's to come at it from beneath. 
Scripture is above you. It is higher than you. It is the words of a king. The king has spoken, and when the king speaks, you do not answer back with questions and ply it with criticisms. You say, yes, king. Yes, Lord. Whatever scripture says goes. It is the dictums, the commands, the maxims of a king. And it is right. And anything that is opposite in your thinking from what that king says, the king is not the problem. It's you that's the problem. And you must be corrected to your king. So, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. To him that is beneath the word. Because it's the one that is beneath the word that will tremble at it. Because when he sees those words, what does he see? The words of the holy, holy, holy one. The holy, holy, holy one has spoken. And for whatever reason, you have the privilege of beholding those words. Now, this was the inspiration to my original title that I mentioned Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Now, most of us, when we hear that, you know, we're thinking of spanking. Uh, and then we're like, you know, what, what's your view on spanking and corporal punishment? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about it too. And we have this concept of foolishness being bound in the heart of a child. Well, that's children. You know, aren't we glad that we're adults? And so we no longer have foolishness bound up in our heart. Hmm. Let me say it this way. If the rod of correction did not drive out the foolishness when you were a child, guess what's still bound up in your heart? Well, but I'm 43 years old, you might say. Uh-huh. And if the rod of correction did not drive out the foolishness, then you still have foolishness in your heart. There's only one thing that drives out foolishness, and it's what is known in Scripture as the rod of correction. I'm going to introduce you to the rod of correction through this message. And by the way, even though this can be applied very directly to the way a parent parents a child in regards to a rod, you know, some parents have an actual rod that you inscribe the word rod, like chisel it in, and that's fine. It's still a rod, okay? It's a rod of correction. However, the rod of correction in the global sense, and I'm giving way too much away here, but since it's not my main message, I, I can let it, you know, throw you a bone and let you nibble on it. The rod of correction in the bigger sense is the canon of Scripture. It's the king's word. And the king's word, the king's truth, drives out foolishness in the heart of a child. Proverbs is a king writing to a child. So it is literally the king's maxim being written to a child. Now I want to ask a question here. The book of Proverbs, what's it really there for? I mean, we have the new covenant now. We have wisdom in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And we have this archaic book known as the Proverbs, you know, which a lot of parents want their kids to read because, you know, it has some good moral, ethical things in it. And so we want them to, you know, hang out a little in it. But, you know, honestly, what is it? Now, you have three different orientations towards the Proverbs. You roost from above, and you look at it, and you critique them and say, well, you know what, that was probably true back then. You know, but, you know, I don't know about now. And then you have the chum, which is where most of us are with the Proverbs. Let's be honest. See, the words of Jesus might be authoritative to us, but I mean, the Proverbs, I mean, they're just some nice, flowery sayings. In fact, if you ask most of us, the difference between the Proverbs of Solomon, 
and the Chinese Proverbs. There's some great Chinese Proverbs out there, and they're just fascinating. If you go through Chinese Proverbs, you're just like, huh, that's a very good point. Interesting take. It's exactly the way we take the Proverbs in Scripture. For whatever reason, we have certain elements of Scripture that we treat differently than others. Proverbs is one of them. And there's many reasons for this, because some of us honestly feel that there's a contradiction between what Jesus said when he came and what the Proverbs say. And I would like you to know that there are no such contradictions. Canon is canon. And the Proverbs are literally a measuring rod for Jesus' Messiahship. If he doesn't perfectly fulfill the Proverbs, then he isn't the Messiah. He is the Mashal, or the Proverbs, made flesh. He is the enunciation of wisdom. He is the Father's take on reality in human form. The Proverbs, you know, talk about a fool and a wise man. The wise man is Jesus. It's Jesus. This is the enunciation of it. You have the first man, which is, we could call it the firstborn or the old man. And then we have the secondborn, the second man, the wise the one that had to be corrected by a rod. It was the rod of correction that drove out the foolishness in the heart and actually made way for a wise man to be built. Uh, just wait till we get into this. It's extremely fascinating. So the book of Proverbs, is it merely filler material? God needed 66 books for whatever reason. We don't really need the Proverbs because we have Jesus. And so we can skip over that and delete it out as far as we're concerned. But you know, it's not that it doesn't have some good things to say. You know how most people treat Proverbs 31? I've heard so much mockery about Proverbs 31 in our day. You know, because Leslie and I deal with manhood and femininity issues all the time. And there's literally a contempt for Proverbs 31. It's like, oh yeah, right. As if anyone actually lives that way. Uh-huh. You know what you could say about all 31 of them? Yeah, oh yeah, right. As, any, as if anyone actually lives that way as the wise man. Uh-huh. You're showing your cards when you do that. You see, you're not trembling before the word of God. It's rebuking you. It's saying, do you see that you're wrong? I say, I, well, are you actually expecting me to live this? You must live this. Well, how am I supposed to live this? Welcome to the gospel. Excluded from the benefits. How many of you in here are Jewish? Oh, good job, guys. We have two. I want you to realize that means the rest of us are what would be considered in Scripture as Gentiles or dogs, okay? <laughs> we are outside the pale of the covenants. There are certain promises that are made to the Jews, and they're not made to the Gentiles. So look at this. In Ephesians 2, now this is cropped out. I'm going to give you the whole Scripture in just a second, but I want you to see what it says in Ephesians 2. The Gentiles are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, the commonwealth. There is a wealth that has been made common to the Jews, and it is not available to you. You are aliens from the commonwealth, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what's known as the bad news, okay? You have actually no share. You know one, one of the things that was in the share of promise and covenant? The mashal. The Proverbs. You see, the Jews were entrusted with the wisdom of God. They were actually imparted and given the way in which a man ought to live. And if he lives this way, he will succeed. 
However, if you're a pagan nation, if you're of the Philistinians, Philistinians, the, Philist- the Philistines, that sounded funny. <laughs> if you're of the Philistines, guess what? You do not have the mashal. And you would reject the mashal anyways. You have no ability to even perceive it or to discern it. The mashal of the Proverbs were given to the Jews so that they could prove to be wise. And the rod of correction known as the mashal itself, the very words of truth, could drive out foolishness out of the individual life, out of the marriage, out of the family, and out of the nation. Now the Jews didn't always handle the mashal very well, and as a result, foolishness remained at times, but they had the tool that no other nation had. And guess what? As a Gentile, you have no access to this tool. It's funny Because here we are Gentiles with the privilege of being brought into the commonwealth because of the blood of Jesus. Let's read the scripture. Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen to this great conclusion. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought into the commonwealth. You've been given access to the mashal, to the manner in which you can live rightly. You've been given it. And guess what most of us do? We treat it with contempt. And we don't tremble before it. Here we are, dogs on the outside. We have no privilege of coming in and then... Many of us are actually bragging about the fact that we're in, and yet the benefits of that which we have inside are completely discarded and held off to the side. You have the mashal, and you treat it as if it's some archaic thing that doesn't even matter to you. This has weight and gravity in our lives. The privilege of the king's proverb. The word is mashal, which means proverb, parable, Sentence of ethical, sentences of ethical wisdom, ethical maxims. Now, the Chinese can have proverbs. The Hindus can have proverbs. You know, there's all sorts of proverbs. So let's understand this word a little deeper. Because if we just call it a proverb, what's the difference between a Hindu proverb and a Chinese proverb? Do they all? Should they all be treated equal? Well, of course, I think you already know the answer to that. But I want you to realize the word here in the Hebrew is very important. And that's why, unfortunately, I have to bring you through some of these old-fashioned words that we wouldn't use in the English language. Mashal. Now, look at this next word. See, look at the spelling of this one. Now, look at this next word. You see any difference? There's a little uh, difference in pronunciation. This is the word from which mashal comes from. It's mashal. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. Same word. But mashal comes from the Hebrew understanding of to rule, have dominion, and reign. It's the king's authoritative dictums. He is defining truth. This isn't a Chinese proverb. You see, there's this veil that stands between us and the heavenly realms. The Chinese proverb is someone stuck in the dark shadow realm here of earth, attempting to make sense of it. And it doesn't mean it's not true. There's a difference because the king's proverb comes from the other side of the veil. And it defines this realm. It says, you can't see these things, but I do. And here is my declaration of it. If you heed it, you will live. If you reject it, you will die. 
Foolishness is bound up in all of your hearts. But if you pay heed to my rod of correction, I will drive it from you. So our word is mashal mashal. That's the authoritative Proverbs. So what is a proverb? It's canon-weighted maxims. It has the weight of divine authority. The rule of the king, the measurement of truth, the doctrine of the kingdom, the tested and proven word of life that possesses the divine right to rule and control, measure, and judge the human life. This isn't a Chinese proverb. This isn't from the Tamil in some Hindu religion. This is God's statement on the matter. And you could say, well, it was written by Solomon. Are we going to go there? It's inspired of God. And he just happens to be the temple builder king. He is the king of peace. He is the example of the one who comes in the flesh, Jesus. But it is actually the word of God, Jesus, that is inspired in and through, or the one who inspired is Jesus. Solomon was carried along to write the Proverbs, or the Mashal Mashal. The two primary agendas of the Proverbs, okay, sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to give you two more Hebrew words, okay? Now, this is a good test for my Hebrew pronunciation because I'm not very good with the type of stuff. Chokmah. You hear that? Some of you are thinking, hey, he's getting better. Chokmah. And Musar. Okay, now I add like Spanish tones and Italian tones to my... uh, my pronunciation, so just try and overlook those things, okay? I'll try and get it as close as I can, but chakma and musar. Those are the two primary agendas of the Proverbs. So if I ended the message right here, how would you be doing? Okay, you've been given the mashal mashal. God himself makes it clear why you've been given it. This is extraordinary. He says, this is why I gave it to you. You were outside of the benefits of it, but I have given it to you and brought you into, brought you nigh via the blood of Jesus in order that I may give you the Mashal Mashal for Hakma and Musar. And you're like, okay, I don't know how, what I can do with Hakma and Musar. I mean, I'd love to have it, Eric. I'm just not exactly sure what it's going to do to me. Okay, so the Proverbs of Solomon, or the Mashal Mashal of the king, the son of David, king of Israel, to know Hakma and Musar. Okay, now you notice it says dot, 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 but I I just want you to focus here. This is how the book of Proverbs starts. It says that you may know Chakmah and Musar. There's our word. I get to say this a lot. Chakmah. Wisdom. Okay, this is actually what it's typically translated as. But I want you to realize, in the Proverbs, the word for wisdom is, it's used, it's translated as wisdom for the English language quite a few times. Just like love. There's various forms of wisdom. And so, but this is sort of the kingpin version, the hakma. It would be the, the global uh, umbrella word. Wisdom, to rule well your life and that authority which is entrusted to you. So to rule well your life and to rule well in and amidst your authority that you've been entrusted. I've been given my body, for instance. I need wisdom to rule well this body and the authority that I've been bequeathed to tell my body what to do, okay? I need to do it well, and I need wisdom for that. And actually, the mashal mashal is for that. It will actually explain to me how to rightly rule my body, how to rightly rule my mind, 
how to rightly rule my marriage, how to rightly rule my relationships and family, how to rightly rule in uh, friendships, how to rightly handle the fool, how to rightly handle the ungodly man, how to, un- how to rightly handle the strange, adulterous woman. It teaches you how to rightly handle your domain. So to protect and care well for that which is in your jurisdiction. So for those of you that uh, have been tracking Ellerslie for a long time, that's the Greek word proistomai. To protect and care well for. Well, what do you need to do that? You need wisdom. You need hakma. To judge rightly. To protect that which is entrusted. To care for that which is yours. To bring heavenly decision in all matters of life. To know the righteous course. Righteousness means the way a man ought to be. So the righteous course would be the way a man ought to go. There is a proper way for you to live. Have you ever tried to figure out how to live life? It's like, how in the world am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to rule my body? How am I supposed to rule my mind? How am I supposed to rule my marriage? How am I supposed to rule my family? How am I supposed to raise them? How do we do these things? How am I supposed to run a church? If you have the hakma, if you treat the mashal mashal with reverence, did you know that you could lead nations? That's actually what it says. Oh, keep going. To know the righteous course, to know how a man ought to behave, ought to act, ought to speak, ought to live, and ought to serve. To rule your body and mind with excellence. To rule your marriage and family with sharpness and alacrity. To rule in church matters with divine prudence. To rule in matters of civil government with heavenly judgment. To have mental skill for war and to answer enemy attack with divine stratagem. I love that one. To courageously, boldly, and unabashedly make judgment in the most troubled times and in matters of the most difficult and perplexing nature. What do you need? You need hakma. Do you have it? No, you have foolishness bound up in your heart. And so guess what God has done? He has given you the mashal mashal. He has given you that which you need, the word of God. Not just in text, in person. You have everything you need for hakma. Musar. Okay, now remember, these are the two things that the Proverbs are good for. Hakma and Musar. Now there are more, as you will soon see, but this is how it starts. Musar. Instruction. I know that's how it's typically translated, and I I want you to know. For most of us, when we think about instruction, what do we think about? We think of sitting in a classroom, and some teacher getting up at a blackboard and writing something. It's actually not what instruction is. You see, in the classical sense of education, instruction is chastisement or discipline or correction. In other words, there's something that is wrong with you as a student. You have ignorance. You have foolishness. And so an instructor, a discipler, a teacher, will actually drive out the foolishness from you and replace it with truth. So an instructor doesn't just throw information at you. It corrects you when you say something wrong. It says, nope. That's incorrect. It points it out. Huh? Should we be offended at that? An instructor isn't allowed to do that. You know what instructors used to be able to do? Take the rod to their children. Instructors did that, not just parents. It's like, hey, this kid's acting up. I need to declare to not just his, own, his soul, but everyone else in the class, this is incorrect behavior. They're learning. The class is learning what righteousness is, the way a man or a woman ought to be. That's instruction. So the divinely authoritative correction of God. The Proverbs are for wisdom and correction. That's what they're for. Now let's dig a little deeper. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know Chachmah and Musar. The two purposes of the king's maxims. 
Hakma. To know the righteous course. And so wisdom is, this is my simplistic definition for it. To know the righteous course. This is the way you ought to go. This is what it would look like. This is how you would do it, okay? To know how a man ought to be in all of life's situations. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be great to know how you ought to be in all of life's situations? Well, um, you can. Don't you realize that you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus to the Mashal Mashal himself in flesh? Jesus? He is made unto us the wisdom of God. If we could take the Hebrew word and stick it in there, the hakma. He's been made unto us the hakma. <laughs> That's extraordinary. You, except for two of you in here, are dogs. And that includes me. <laughs> and we're outside the pale of the commonwealth of Israel. We're aliens. We're strangers to the covenants. We do not have the benefit of life and life abundant. But Jesus, the king himself, has come and made it available to us in and through the work of the cross. Hakma, to know the righteous course. And now Musar, to be trained in the righteous course. Follow me on this. Imagine if someone came to you and said, here are the directions to, and I'm trying to think of a great destination, you know, some place that you really want to go. I'm, boy, I can't think of it. All I can think of is Disneyland, and that, I don't know if that's the best parallel here. Okay, but let's imagine that Disneyland was a godly, glorifying place, okay? And it's one of those, it's this kingdom out there. And you are given directions to it. That's wisdom. You actually now have the hakma. You know how to get there. You've been given the instructions. Now, you need Musar to be trained in that course. Now you need to know how to get there. You know how, but now you need the equipment to make it along the journey. Your car's starting to run out of gas. You need Musar. No, when it gets below this gauge, you need to stop at a gas station, fill up the tank. You know, if a child isn't trained in these things, foolishness will reign. And what will happen to the child? He'll run out of gas on the side of the road on his way to the magic kingdom. Well, that doesn't do you any good, does it? You have the wisdom, but you need the Musar. You must have foolishness driven out of you so that the ignorance... That which doesn't understand is corrected to become in alignment with that which is true. Okay, so we have the hakma and the musar. Oh, and there's a third purpose to the Proverbs. Actually, there's even more than that, but I'm going to focus on three. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know hakma and musar. How do you like this one? Bin emir binah. Uh, I worked on that this week. Uh, Sandy said she was working on it too. Bin Amir Binah. There it is. Bin Amir Binah. This is a, this is a funny thing. Okay, so the Mishal Mishal, the Proverbs of the king, have been given to us for hakma or wisdom, and for instruction or correction, which is also musar, that's the Hebrew word, and for this, which means to understand the words of understanding. In other words, there's understanding, and you don't understand it. It's like getting a, a direction manual that's written in Chinese. Now, some of you are like, oh, I could handle that. Uh, Pakistanian, pick some obscure, uh, someone's in here, like, oh, yeah, well studied in it. Okay, it's in a language that we don't naturally speak. 
It's the understanding. It's literally in a heavenly language. God knows everything about how he created this earth. Who made this earth? He did. Who has the understanding of how every little detail works, how every cell works? He does. He has the understanding, and you don't understand the understanding. He hands you the book, the Mashal Mashal. He gives you the word of God. It has all the understanding you need, and guess what? You have no clue how to handle it, which is why you need Chakma and why you need Musar, and why you need Bin Amir Binah. So let's dig into this a little deeper. To be able to reckon, to grasp, to fully receive, to truly gain that which is in the instruction manual, or in this case, the Word of God. Okay, in other words, what good is it to have it if you don't understand it? You must be able to grasp it. You must be able to gain it, to grip it. That's what we deal with at Ellerslie. That's discipleship. Discipleship is all three of these things in a nutshell. You must have the wisdom. You must see what God is about. And then you must be uh, trained and corrected in accordance with that truth. And then you must reckon it. You must take it. You must get a grip on it in your soul to truly gain that which is in the word, to not just know that you must stand upon something, but to actually stand upon it, to truly have the word, the rock, the king's maxim, under your standing. Do you guys see the word understand anywhere in there? To truly have the word, the rock, the king's maxim, under your standing. Understand. What does understand mean? To know that which you stand upon. To understand it. You, you, you're standing. That's what Christianity is. You literally rise up and take your position. And under you, you have rock. You have the king's maxim. But you must know how that maxim works so that you can stand effectively in your understanding. So to understand your understanding, the words of your understanding. These are some samples of what that would be like. In other words, to understand the understanding is sort of like saying to be freed by the words of freedom. You see, if you were told that you were set free, but then you never embraced the freedom and never allowed the shackles to come off your wrist, even though the key was sitting right there, and you never stuck it in the lock and turned it, well, then it's not understanding the understanding. Okay, so it's to be freed by the words of freedom. You've been given words of freedom you must be freed by him. So there's a need to have the actual activation of the very truth in your life. What's Christianity if it's not activated? Most of us would agree. But that's to most of us what the Proverbs is. It's just a whole bunch of good-sounding things. However, what the Proverbs are for, what the Mashal Mashal of your king is for, is for the wisdom, it's for the correction, and it's that you would actually have it in reality in your life. So to be saved by the words of salvation, you know how many people have heard the words of salvation, know the words of salvation, have never been saved by it? Well, that's a ridiculous thing. Why would anyone remain that way? That's a good question. It's called foolishness. You see, they never receive the rod of correction to say you're not even in the faith. You see, there's a measurement of Scripture that calls us out and says, hey, that's incorrect. What? That's incorrect. Hey, I don't like that. The Christian, the wise man, you know what they say? Tell me, if there's anything wrong with this life, correct it. And what happens? Life begins to work. You see, when we catch the vision of what life should be, and then we allow the rod of correction to come in and expose that which is not right within us, 
then suddenly there is an open channel for the understanding. To find peace in the declaration of peace. Wouldn't it be miserable to hear that there's a declaration of peace and have none of it? What do you think the New Testament is? You know how many of us have lived without any peace in our life, even though there's a declaration of peace that passes all understanding? I don't know about you, but I'd start to get a little frustrated with that. You see, you don't have the being a mere binah. You must understand the understanding. You must gain that which has been declared. It's there. Well, what do you think the Mashal Mashal is for? You must come under it and say, train me, I'm a fool. Because I'm living as if I'm a wise man when in actuality I'm not even living it. Oh, to receive love in the words of love. The entire work of Christ is a work of love. And guess what? Most of us still don't even know that God loves us. We're not activating, we're not gripping, we're not reckoning, we're not taking that which has been done. We just have intellectual understanding of it. To actually grasp the good benefit when hearing the words of good news. Do you have the good benefit? Or do you just nod your head and say, yeah, it's good news? Well, when it's good news, you fall flat on your face in awestruck wonder and admiration. To be empowered to actually live the life empowered. God says that there's power to live. You have all that you need for life and godliness. Do you? Do you? Not does he say that. Do you have it? The Mashal Mashal, the Proverbs of God, the Word of God, the canon-tested maxims of the King are here for wisdom, Musar, and being Amir Binah, so that you can be what you ought to be. So, this is in summary, the three purposes of the King's maxims. Hakmah, to know the righteous course, which we've gone over, this is a review, to know the righteous course, to know how a man ought to be in all of life's situations. Musar, which is the instruction portion, the correction, which is to be trained in the righteous course, to be corrected when you are not as you ought to be in the midst of all life's situations. If you are incorrect in one of life's situations, you're going a little off course, guess what the Musar is? The Proverbs of God, or if you want to say it, the canon of God, the Word of God, will correct you to get you back on course. It's a nice feature, by the way. And being a mere binah, to be empowered in the righteous course. That's a good one. You see, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be corrected in it. But how many of us have spent our entire life being corrected in the, the righteous course knowing we're not walking in it? And we do not have the power to live it. You know what? I like this being a mere binah. You must have it enabled to become as a man ought to be in the midst of all of life's situations. To become it. Not to just esteem it, not to just know it. Not to be corrected in it and feel, yeah, yeah, that's wrong, yeah, that was incorrect. But to now do it. To perform it, to understand the understanding. To gain grip and to have freedom from the words of freedom. The king's maxims must be cherished. Now look at this scripture in 2 Timothy. All scripture, remember, well, I'm not going to give this away yet. I'll, I'll see if you can put the puzzle piece together. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, which is as a man ought to be, okay? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, I don't know if you just saw a parallel unfold between Proverbs 1 
1 through 7, and 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. So what I did is I stuck a little Hebrew in the New Testament, okay? And technically, it should say adapted next to this, okay? But this is an adapted scripture. All mashal, all the dictates of the king, okay, the proverbs of the king, are given by inspiration of God and are profitable for hakma, for wisdom. That said doctrine in the previous one. What is doctrine? It's the framework of how it's all supposed to work. This is what it looks like. This is the way a man of God ought to be. This is what God had built you for here on earth. Doctrine. So it's profitable for that. All scripture is. All mashal is. And for musar. Which then, if you want to put it in parentheses, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It should say for reproof in there too. That the man of God may be complete. Being Amir binah, good work. In other words, that he would be fully equipped. That he would have the power for every good work. We need the mashal for hakma musar and being Amir binah. That's actually what it says in 2 Timothy. Ironically, the same thing that Proverbs 1, 1 through 3 says. Hmm. The fool. I don't know if any of us are identifying with this guy right now. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know Hakma and Musar, to bin emir binah, and then let's fast forward to verse 7. There's a lot of good stuff between verse 3 and verse 7, by the way. But let's fast forward to verse 7. Fools despise hakma and musar. Isn't that interesting? That's the first introduction to the statement about a fool in Proverbs. Is that everything the Proverbs are for, the fool despises it. I don't need that. I have my own wisdom. I have a very high IQ. You know, you could have the highest IQ in the world and be an absolute fool in God's eyes. It has nothing to do with how well you pass your SAT test. It has to do with if you receive and delight in the hakma and the musar of God. Because outside, in your own understanding, you cannot gain the wisdom of God. You don't have it. You're outside the commonwealth of it. You have no access to it. It's in your natural mind. You do not esteem it. It is spiritually discerned. So you naturally, by course, are the fool. How does that feel? Yeah. Every single one of us outside of Jesus Christ, a fool. With foolishness bound up in our hearts. For my people are foolish. They have not known me. This is God speaking. They are sottish children. Isn't that a hilarious statement? They are sottish children. How would you like to be included in that list? Sottish children. And they have no understanding they are wise to do evil. Listen, listen to this line again. They are wise to do evil. Oh boy, they're brilliant for that. But to do good, they have no knowledge. Right before it says, the fool despises Chachman Musar, it says, but the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's actually what it says. The fear of God, which means you tremble. When you tremble and you say, he is right, guess what? you begin to increase in God knowledge, in hakma, in musar, in bin amir binah. That's what knowledge would be. Foolishness is bound up in the heart. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of musar 
shall drive it far from him. That's our Hebrew word. Now you can already feel smart. Like, oh yeah, I know some Hebrew. The rod of correction, the same word translated in the very beginning of Proverbs as instruction. It's correction. The rod of correction shall drive it far from him. The rod of Musar. Foolishness is bound up, but there's only one thing that can get it out. And that's the rod of Musar, the rod of correction. And by the way, if any of you have, have ever heard the message canon, it's an Ellerslie session, but I would highly recommend it. I don't know if we ever have made it available online for people outside of Ellerslie. But it deals with the rod of God. Canon means rod. And canon is the 66 books of the Bible. So the rod of correction is canon. And of course, Jesus is the, is the canon made flesh. Musar. This is a deeper understanding of Musar. Correction, discipline, chastening. Which in the New Testament, you have to realize the terminology changes a little. And we use things like pruning, refining, threshing, suffering. This is very important for you to catch. You see, what is talked about in Proverbs, all throughout Proverbs with this musar, 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 this training, this correction, this chastisement, in the New Testament, there's even a deeper understanding because what was external becomes internal. The kingdom of God is brought in. Musar, it exposes error with the power of truth. Musar, it eliminates ignorance with the purging strength of the king's word. Musar, it's holding the soul accountable to the realities of the king's way, saying, here is the way, walk ye in it. Musar, it brings proper punishment for foolish behavior and proper reward for receptivity of truth. Every parent has to bring a good deal of musar to the development of their children. If they spare the musar, the child's ruined. It's just a fact. If you do not bring musar upon your children, they will not be corrected and foolishness will remain bound up in their souls and they will become a detriment to the world around them. However, if you bring musar, you are not only setting them free from foolishness, but now you are building them into the wise. And the wise, you know what? We need more wise on this earth. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the church. Now, that might sound like an extreme statement. It's like, hey, speak for yourself. You might have a little foolishness bound up in your heart. We don't. Well, I'm just going to make a statement of fact today. We have not trembled before the word of God. And as a result, the rod of Musar has not driven out the foolishness in the church. And as a result, we are a wayward church thinking we are wise. There is a way that seemeth right unto the modern church, but it leads to death. Well, where is that from? Well, I didn't actually say it that way, but that's Proverbs. You see, Proverbs, when treated as the king's maxims, will give you an understanding of actually how to live, how to become the wise. The desperate need for the, for the rod of Musar to return. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the church, but the rod of Musar shall drive it far from it. He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him diligently seeks to bring Musar to him. Now you have to realize, I put that in parentheses because I had to figure out a way of grammatically making a statement. That's actually what it, it uses the word Musar right there. Loves him, chastens him be times. is actually what it says in the King James. That's a little awkward to know how to say Musars him be times. No one even knows what be times is. It means to diligently do it, okay? So he that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him diligently seeks to bring Musar to him. 
Fact, faith, and experience, and this is the French way of saying redo. Uh, Isn't that cool? Fact, faith, and experience. I don't know if any of you remember, but there are three characters walking a ridgepole. The first character is fact, second one is faith, third one's experience. Fact is just un- is able to walk the ridgepole, the thing that no one else for some reason can do because it's fact. Just can do it. Okay, now that would be the king's maxim, the mashal. It's fact. It's just the way things are by description of God himself who created all things. Fact works. That's what's revealed in the word of God. So when fact walks the ridgepole, if faith, which is where you are at in this whole scene, you're like the second character. If you keep your eyes focused on fact, guess what? You walk the ridgepole as well. However, there's a third character who's very annoying, and his name is Experience. And Experience is always clawing at your shirt, saying, hey, well, what about Great Aunt Martha? Remember this? Remember this? Remember this? And if you consult Experience, instead of keeping your eyes focused on the king's mashal, you will fall off the ridgepole. Okay, so this is a redo version of that. I want you to realize that what is in front of you, God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. There is a way that seemeth right unto man. There is a way that when we pop out of the womb and we start milling around on this earth, there's a way that we naturally think life should be. There are things that we naturally go after, and that's just what men do. But it leads to death. Here you are stuck in the, in the middle. When you were a Gentile outside the pale of the commonwealth of Israel, guess what? All you had was one choice. And that's the way that seemeth right unto a man. You had no other options. The mashal was not available to you to know. But guess what? You've been brought nigh by the blood of Jesus. And there's now an option in God. It's called repentance. You turn, you change your mind on the world's wisdom. You say, that's actually dung. That's worthless. It leads to death. And you choose to turn to God's wisdom. The king's mashal is what I will follow. And as a result... Your life will work. And that's what's called the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And when the winds and the rains come, guess what? The wise man's house actually stands. Though he was mocked the whole while, he was building it. The world will not understand godly wisdom. You have godly wisdom. Do not treat it with contempt and roost above it, looking down with a compassionate gaze, figuring out how you can help it along. How you can retranslate it for our modern day. Do not just buddy up with it. Submit to it. Kneel before it and declare it as your king, your master, your lord. Going the wrong way. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. A good old proverb there. It actually says it twice in Proverbs, so I gave you both references there. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell... We are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come nigh nigh unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hid ourselves. This is how most of us live. When the scourge comes, when judgment comes, we'll be safe. Why? Because we've made lies our refuge. We have concocted a false reality to justify why we do not need to heed the king's mashal. And even as Christians, we do this. I'll take the pieces of the king's mashal that I want, but I don't need to actually live it all out. When the king speaks, he speaks. He doesn't stutter, and he means it. And if you choose to turn away from the king's mashal, 
You are the fool, and the fool's end is your end. And I want you to feel the full weight of that because we have serious foolishness in the church today where we are justifying our errant ways under the banner of God's grace. When we have been given the king's mashal, do not be the fool. You can be built into the wise man, but you must love the hakmah and the musar. You must embrace the suffering. You must embrace the correction. You must embrace the truth and say, it's right, this is wrong. The way of God. Remember, it's, I said there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, and then there's a way of God. And by the way, it doesn't seem right unto man, as you will soon see. Luke 6, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smites thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that takes away the cloak, forbid not to take the coat also. In other words, when he takes the cloak, give him your coat also. Love you your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. What kind of wisdom is that? I'm not going to lend and not expect it back. It's bad business policy. Uh-huh. What's going on inside of you right now? You like the king's mashal or not? See, his wisdom is true wisdom. And what you're reading here doesn't sound like wisdom. It sounds like stupidity. Because you're used to thinking through the lens of the world. You need to repent of that and change your mind on whose wisdom you're going to follow. Love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And you shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. What a strange kingdom policy that is. They're unthankful and evil. I'm not going to be kind to them. Well, the king is kind to them. Whose mashal are you taking? God's way is the other way. The way of the holy, holy, holy king. The word holy means otherly or set apart. Different than, other than. Your king has another way. It's different than this world's way. We call it the holy, holy, holy way. It's not just a little bit different. It's holy and completely different. It's the other way. God's way is the way that is free, for, free and clean of all defilement, crimes, idolatries, and impurity. God's way is the way that we won't discern without divinely imparted eyesight. You literally can't even see it. You don't even know it's there. All you see is the broad way. You don't see the narrow way. God's way is the way that we won't esteem without a divinely orchestrated change of mind. You'll look at it and you'll mock it. You'll hold it in contempt. Remember the fool? The fool doesn't want chokmah and musar. The fool looks at God's way and laughs, holds it in contempt, as if I would ever do that. Well, the fool has an end that isn't very comfortable. And God's way is the way that we won't esteem without a divinely orchestrated change of mind. And God's way is the way that we won't ever pursue and can't pursue without a divinely governed rescue operation. Whoa! In other words, you don't really have any hope in this world, do you? Not only are you cut off from the commonwealth of Israel and you're strangers and aliens, but you can't even esteem it even if it was stuck in front of you. You're the swine with a nice diamond in front of you stuck in amongst all the rocks and you snarf it up just like it was a rock. You don't understand the difference. You don't see the distinction between the king's mashal and your wisdom. You must see it. But God's way is the way that we won't ever pursue and can't pursue without a divinely governed rescue operation.
Uh, hey guys, we need a divinely governed rescue operation. And I don't know exactly how to come up with it because it needs to be divinely governed. We need help. Jesus Christ, the divine rescue operation, the way of God. See, there's a way that seems right unto a man, and all of us are walking in it. It leads to death. But there's a way that is right unto God, but we can't see it. Few are those who find it. It's a way of difficulty and compression. It's exactly opposite the way we would naturally go. We come out of the womb going this way, and God's going that way. We don't even know how to turn. We don't know that it's there. And even if we do peek over our shoulder, we'll hold it in contempt. There must be an alteration of the system. The rewiring needs to take place and we can't rewire ourselves because we don't have the wisdom to do it. We don't even understand the Chinese or Pakistani manual. We look at it, we open it, and it doesn't make any sense to us. And so we continue walking in the way of death. We need to be rescued. Who can save me from this body of death, says Paul. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, he is the other way, the way of the holy, holy, holy king. Jesus Christ, he is the way that is free and clean of all defilement, crimes, idolatries, and impurities. He is the way a man ought to walk in, holy, without, a, without sin. He was without sin. He did it. He walked it. A quick study in the way of God. The great condescension, the highness of God entering the stable of manhood. Now I want you to realize what I'm about to read to you is exactly opposite of the world's way. There is nothing reasonable about it to our minds. When we say hakma, we think worldly wisdom. God's not talking about worldly wisdom. He's talking about being trained and corrected in accordance with his way. Jesus is his way. You can try and excuse your way and say, well, Jesus had to walk that way. That was his special rendition of life. No, it's the way. The way Jesus walked is the way. Paul walked in the way. Peter walked in the way. Every great Christian that is before us that we esteem walked in the way. That's why early Christianity was called the way. The great condescension, the highness of God entering the stable of manhood. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Who in their right mind comes to earth this way? God could do it any way he wants. He's the way. And what you just read was the way. Highness, purity, majesty, Everything that is marvelous and strikes awe within our souls condescended to become a fetus. That is outrageous. Could you imagine the angel standing by and saying, Hold it, something's going wrong here. Someone messed with the script. That isn't how God Almighty should, should be. He, he's, he's in. 
He's in that little girl? Seemingly illegitimate. Announced by shepherds. Born in a little bedraggled town without any fanfare but what the shepherds saw. And the shepherds were the lowly of lowly in Israel. This is one bad plan. No? That's what you think. In heaven, this is the wisest course. It's known as the way. You see, this is how God does his business. And if you're going to start doing business God's way, you do it God's way. Sparganao, to wrap in swaddling clothes, omnipotence wrapped in weakness. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, we've all heard this. This doesn't even strike a chord of interest within us. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's sparganao. He's wrapped in weakness. It says he's wrapped in swaddling claws. God Almighty. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me get this straight. God Almighty is a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Uh, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? The Spirit of God dwells in you, and once again, the Almighty God is wrapped in swaddling clothes? You! He's wrapped in you! This doesn't sound like a good idea. It's his idea, and if he didn't have the idea, you'd be a dead man or a woman. We have no hope outside of God's way. God chose the way to rescue us, knowing that without it, we were sunk. God come to earth as a little lamb, where the highness of God and the weakness of humanity intersect. God setting aside his almighty godness. God forsaking his fiery presence and his cloud of glory. God relinquishing the continual worship of the angelic multitudes. God purposely trading his almighty lion's mane for a lamb's woolly stature. God, who still was 100% God and knew he was God and was unabashed by the fact that he was God, gave up his reputation as the great I am and became one of no reputation. By the way, I want to emphasize, he knew he was God and was unabashed by the fact that he was God, gave up his reputation as the great I am and became one of no reputation. Extraordinary! God, the master of worlds, the king of kings, the lord of lords, took on the form of a bondservant and allowed his ear to be pierced by his father in heaven that he would be bound to do nothing of his own will. God condescended to take on the swaddling clothes of humanity and is laid in a feeding trough as food for the starving multitudes. God functioned in the capacity of a mere man, unrecognizable as God, but God nonetheless, humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the horrifying and gruesome death of the cross. God actually died. God tasted the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, and the dreadful judgment of almighty righteousness. The hagios way of God. And I'm sorry I have to do this to you. This is a Greek word. It means holy. It's a very important word. You ever heard this before? Hagios, hagios, hagios. Doesn't sound right, does it? Hagios is not a very attractive word. Let's just admit it, okay? To us Americans, holy sounds a lot better. But the Greek way of saying it is hagios, hagios, hagios. Holy, holy, holy. The hagios way of God. It's the holy way. It's the other way. It's not the way we naturally are bent towards. It's his way. It's the hagios way. 
The other way, the way of the holy, holy, holy king. The way that is free and clean of all defilement, crimes, idolatries, and impurities, which is the actual definition of kadosh, which is the word for holy in the Old Testament. Unpacking the beauty of hagios. Okay, so even though the word doesn't naturally hold it for us, it has to do with the word hog, I think, in our culture. We understand hog, and it's a dirty animal, so it's, you can't get anything more opposite. This is purity, purity, purity. Cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness. And so we stumble over the word maybe, but I want to say unpacking the beauty of this word. This is a great word. It comes from the word hagos. Remember, our word is hagios. It comes from the word hagos, which means something that strikes men with utter awe and wonder. Okay? But this is the word that it comes from. Our word is hagios. Okay? This is hagos. Now, hagos, I'm going to give you its two roots. It is built and put together from two different words in the Greek. And that's hognos and, cho- and hog. Remember that. That's that there. Hog. Root one, hognos. Perfect, unsullied, otherly, awe-striking, bewildering, extravagant purity. Okay, that's parts of the word. Now look at the other. Hog, a feast, festival sacrifice, a pilgrim feast. A feast. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Here's our word, hagios. Hagos, which is a thing, is now revealed as a person. You see, hagos is merely saying that thing strikes awe and wonder. But hagios is the personal form of it. It's now a person that strikes awe and wonder. And it's God himself. The something that strikes men with utter awe and wonder has come. His name is Jesus and he is hagios, hagios. Hagios. Jesus is the way of God, the other way, the Hagios way. That way of humble sacrifice, listen very closely to this. Now remember what the two words for Hagos were? It was the utter awe-striking purity and unblemished character mixed with a feast. It's that way of humble sacrifice, the holy, pure, holy, otherly, unsullied, awe-inspiring, almighty lamb become an extravagant feast for an impure, unholy, worldly, sullied world. Okay, now, the unblemished lamb, not just a mere lamb that the Hebrew nation might have raised in its, in its sheep pen. The almighty lamb of God has come in all purity and wasn't just born as a baby, but was laid in a feeding trough and became a feast. Um... Hagios. It's the other way. It's not a way that any of us would choose. None of us are coming up with that plan. God, I have an idea. You are born as a little baby, and you get stuck in a feeding trough in in a smelly stable. And then we'll make your body meat and food, and we'll make your blood drink. And if everyone partakes of your body, then they can live. I love the idea. No, none of us would come up with it. This is absolutely off the charts opposite. Hagios, hagios, hagios. We cry out in utter astonishment, struck with awe. For the perfect, unsullied, awe-striking purity and otherness has himself become the food for the feast. The perfect, unsullied, awe-striking purity and otherness has himself become the food for the feast. The perfect, unsullied, awe-striking purity and otherness has himself become the food for the feast. Holy, 
holy, holy. That's what it means. The perfect, unsullied, awe-striking purity and otherness has himself become the food for the feast. We're staggered. We tremble. We fall down flat on our face. He's holy. It's at first a question. He, he's holy? He's holy. His way is completely opposite. The Arnion, the little lamb. How did Jesus come? He came as a Arnion, is the actual word, as a little lamb. Now, let's get into the council chambers of heaven and imagine that you're on the seat, you know, or you have a seat in the committee. It's like, okay, uh, you know, God's going to come to earth. Uh, we need to come up with some metaphorical picture of what kind of animal he's going to be. Uh, yeah, you. I'm thinking a wild stallion bulging with muscles. Hmm, good thoughts. Okay, anyone else? Thinking a, a lion that roars really loudly, you know, and claws at things and eats them for dinner. Uh, good idea. Uh, anyone else? What are we going to come up with? Not this. This is the worst choice. Okay, what would be the one thing farthest from what we would want our God to come to earth as? Okay, committee? Hmm, let's see. I know, an Arneon. A little lamb. Helpless. Weak. Without even a fight in it. Lambs don't know how to fight. They're weak. They're dinner. Uh, no, bad idea. I want you to realize the king's mashal all throughout the Old Testament which, by the way, the mashal, mashal, it's the king's authoritative word, that's the Proverbs. But the entire canon throughout the Old Testament set in place the Arneon. And it said, this is what the Arneon is to be used for. I'll show you the three things. Well, actually, I have to read this first. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the little fluffy white ball of wool who will take away the sin of the world. What an interesting statement to announce out. It's not behold the mighty lion. Behold the little lamb of sacrifice. That's, it, it doesn't just mean lamb, it means little lamb. The little lamb is used for in the Hebrew culture. Sacrifice. And they sacrifice sacrifices unto the Lord, even a thousand lambs. Clothing. The lambs are for thy clothing. Food. They shall take to them every man a lamb, a lamb for a house, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat. And thus shall they eat. Thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on, your feet and your staff in the hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Lambs, sacrifice, clothing, and food. Behold, the lamb. Which culture did he come into? He came in to fulfill the pattern. The king's mashal lays it out and says, this is how you use the little unblemished lambs. And then an unblemished lamb comes in human skin. And John says, behold, the little unblemished lamb who will take away the sins of the world. And he was used for sacrifice. He was used for clothing. And he was used for food. And we say, hagios, hagios, hagios. That, that strikes us with awe. And we fall down and we say, perfection used for the feast? The feeding trough. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. 
house of bread or a house that is bread or a house that is food. It's actually what Bethlehem is. A house that is bread. A house that is food. Jesus says, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Tear down this house and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they mocked him. It says, 46 years it took to build this temple. It says, but the temple of which he spoke was his body. Tear down this house and I'll rebuild it in three days. He fed the nations with his body. You shall find the babe lying in a fatne. It's feeding trough. That's actually the declaration. You will find the little baby lying in a feeding trough. Now, I know right before it's a swaddling clothes, but you have to realize we've seen this so many times that we lose what it's saying. Jesus was laid in a manger. It's a fatne. Manger doesn't mean anything to us other than the Christmas you know, type of feel in the air. It means a feeding trough. There it is. That's a Hebrew fatne. He was laid in that. Literally, symbolically. He's a food for animals. Who are the animals? The fools. Us. He was food for the Gentile dogs. It's extraordinary. And we cry out, Hagios, Hagios, Hagios. A highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but the redeemed shall walk there. Now imagine if we looked at it this way. It's the way of Hagios. Who's interested in here of walking the way of Hagios? Well, you don't need to raise your hand. That's a little awkward. Do you know what it means? It means being sacrifice. It means being clothing and food. It means being laid in the feeding trough. And your life and the strength of your life will be given up for the strength of others. That's what food is. Food gives up its life to nourish and strengthen others. You interested in being food? Uh, isn't there another way? No, there isn't. Well, there's the way that leads to death. So yes, there is. There's a way that leads to death. There's only one way that leads to life. Because that's not a way that leads to life. It leads to being eaten in a feeding trough. Life abundant and full of glory. Let's admit it, we are headed in a completely different direction. Our way is to the place of power, fame, wealth, and pleasure. To the place of ease and self-satisfaction. To the place farthest removed from difficulty, pain, and trial. That's us. The way. To the place of suffering, rejection, and mockery. To the place of weakness, physical pain, affliction, trial, and tribulation. To the place of vulnerability, sacrifice, and entire givenness. To the place of an animal's food. The feeding trough to be the clean food eaten by the unclean beasts. The rod of Musar. So this is going all the way back now to the rod of correction that drives out foolishness. We have foolishness in us, and that's we're still holding on to our way. You see, we esteem God's way, but he's the one that walked that. We now walk our own way. And so thank you, God, for walking that way so that I can get to heaven in the end. And you will live your life on this earth as a fool. And the fool's end will be your end. There's only one way to get the wise man's end, the wise man's benefit, and that's to heed the king's mashal. And to allow the hakma, the wisdom, and the instruction, the rod of Musar, to correct you in the way. Take fast hold of Musar. 
That's the correction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. You see, this doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be corrected when we're wanting to go our way, and God says, no, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Ah, that's a narrow way full of brambles. This is the narrow way, yes. Fewer those who find it. Come, come with me. He is in the way of life that keeps Musar, that keeps the correction, that allows the rebuff and the rebuke of soul to say this is incorrect. He is in the way of life that keeps Musar, but he that refuses reproof errs. That's an understatement. Now, remember we've been talking about the rod of Musar, the rod of correction. That's the Hebrew word, Musar. Now, sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to give you Another Greek word. I know, that's why I said this is an illegal message, okay, in America. We're not allowed to give so much Hebrew and Greek in one thing, especially this much mispronounced uh, of it. If you check me on it, you'll realize Eric was close on all these, okay? It's just that I don't sound Hebrew. If I try and be a Scot, I don't sound Scottish either. If I try and be an Australian, I don't sound Australian either, okay? The rod of Pasho, to play the part of the little lamb and gladly receive the suffering. In the New Testament, we don't use the words instruction, correction, the same way. We have tribulation, affliction, and suffering. And that's, some of us are actually more attracted to the Proverbs. I'd rather go back to that. That just sounds like a rod that hits you on the backside. I don't like this whole tribulation, affliction, and suffering, and pruning. The rod of Pasho, that means suffering. Okay, the rod of correction, suffering. Just a, a little forewarning here. How did Jesus learn obedience? Through Pasho. That's what it says. How did Jesus learn? Through Pasho. And you can say, why does Jesus even need to learn? That's not my business. He was a man just like us. He was trained. Yes, he was God, but he was trained the same way. He was groomed the same way we must be groomed. It's to play the part of the little lamb and gladly receive the suffering. Take fast hold of Pasho. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. Now, what I did is I took Musar... And I switched it out here. So this is the adapted version. So take fast hold of Pasho, which would mean suffering in the New Testament. He is in the way of life that keeps Pasho, but he that refuses reproof errs. Okay, now, the word Pasho comes from this word, and I'm going to show you the derivatives of where it comes from, and you can understand this word at a whole other level. It's extremely profound. Pesach, the Feast of Passover. You see, suffering, the concept of the word suffering comes straight out of this. The feast of Passover, the great sparing from calamity. What are you being spared from with this suffering? With the rod of correction. What's it sparing you from? The way of the fool. The way of death. And so guess what? This is the great sparing. That's what Passover is known as. The great sparing from calamity. The sacrifice of sparing. The intercession of the little lamb. That's what sacrifice, that's what Passover is, it's the intercession of the little lamb. He stood in the way. His blood covered in which the paschal lambs were killed that the people of Israel might be spared from the like penalty of the Egyptians. And then the word pascha comes from Pesach. <laughs> this, is, this is hard. Uh, the unblemished little lamb. This is oftentimes known as the paschal lamb. Okay, That's the lambs that are sacrificed on Passover. The unblemished little lamb who must suffer, be sacrificed, and become food, that the people might be spared from great calamity. 
the little lamb whose blood, whose forsaken life, must cover the houses of the people to spare them from the like destruction with the world. The littlest lamb set apart for the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Who is this? That's Jesus. You know what day Jesus died on? The 14th day of the month of Nisan. The day that the little paschal lambs, little Arnians, were set apart to die. When did Jesus die? 14th day of the month of Nisan. And he, the unblemished little lamb known as Jesus, must suffer, be sacrificed, and become food that the people might be spared from great calamity. The little lamb whose blood, whose forsaken life, must cover the houses of the people to spare them from the like destruction with the world. The little lamb set apart for the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Holy, holy, holy. And here's our word, which typically translates as to suffer. But what are you suffering like? You're suffering like a little lamb. To play the part of the little lamb. To willingly stretch forth your neck unto the axe. To gladly suffer in the body. To spend your blood, your life, for the sparing of others. And for the glory of the one who gave you life in the first place. Paschal. Which comes from Paschal. Which comes from the word for Passover. The way of Pasho, The way of suffering. The way of being made the unblemished Lamb of sacrifice. God's otherly way of training his children. God's otherly means of constructing the wise man. The second born. He trains through the rod of Pasho, through the rod of Musar. Though he, Jesus, were a son, yet learned to obedience by the things which he suffered, or by his Pasho. By playing the part of the little lamb, gladly suffering in his body, and by spending his life, his strength, and his grace for the benefit of those about him. That's how Jesus learned obedience. He, Jesus, must pasho, which means suffer, right? Play the part of the little lamb. Ought not Christ to have pasho and gladly suffer in his body? It behooved Christ to pasho, to spend his life and strength for the benefit of those about him. What a strange list! It's not just right for Jesus. It's right for all God's children. Did you hear that line? Isn't it right that Jesus would suffer Pasho, would, would endure Pasho as a little lamb? Isn't it right? And all of us would sort of, I think it is. But that's him. No, that's the holy way. The way of holiness. The way of hagios. That is the way that the life of the pure little lambs would become food in the feeding trough. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to pasho. Play the part of the little lamb for his sake. You see that? It's not just for Jesus. This is for us. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ so also endured pasho, or he gladly suffered in his body for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You see, he set forth a way, and he intends us to follow it. It's not some special way that he walked, and then we are immune from it. He has made a way and says, follow me, walk you in it. God's otherly training method. For as much then as Christ hath endured pasho for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has endured pasho in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is the rod of correction. 
that drives out foolishness from us, that trains us in righteousness, that literally is the impartation of wisdom. You want to be the wise man. Embrace the pasho. Embrace the way of hagios. But the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have endured pasho a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You see, when you endure pasho, when you endure the rod of correction, you are made perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. You become as the wise man in Proverbs. You become everything that is promised when you heed the king's maxim. How is the way? How does it work? It's opposite, and you must realize the king's wisdom is very different than this world's wisdom. And you must choose today to forsake the world's wisdom that is niggling at your brain, that is grabbing a hold of your shirt and trying to yank your attentions away from God's clearly spoken mashal. The king's maxim has been spoken. The fellowship of his training. Remember Paul says the fellowship of his suffering? It's the fellowship of his pasho. Paul esteems it. He wants it. What's wrong with this guy? Embracing the rod of Pasho, the rod of Musar. Though you are a son, this is the adapted version, because this is what's spoken about Jesus. Though you are a son, yet you must learn obedience by the things which you Pasho. Same way Jesus did. You must Pasho, play the part of the little lamb. Ought not you to have Pasho and gladly suffer in your body? It behooves you to Pasho, spend your life in strength for the benefit of those about you. That's the Jesus pattern right there. This is the last little subsection here. Actually, I have a little thing I'm going to read here as we're getting close to the finish. The Hakmanite. Now, I've broken this down so you can see it. Do you remember what Proverbs are good for? For Hakma and Musar and Bin Amir Binah. This is the Hakmanite. comes from the word wisdom, which is Hakma, and put an N in there, and an Ait, which means a son of. The son of wisdom. Okay? In Scripture, there is a guy known as the Hakmanite. I don't know if you guys know who he is. His name is Joshobium. He's one of David's mighty men. And he's known as the Hakmanite. And by the way, you know what this guy did? He went out to fight 300 all by his lonesome. And then he went out to fight 800 all by his lonesome. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like wisdom. You see, when you're the son of wisdom, that means you bear the evidence of wisdom. You are the fruit of it. So the fruit of wisdom is Joshobium. It's a mighty man. I, I, I love this. Okay, this is profound. He, Joshobium, the Hakmanite, sat in the seat chief among the captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Adino the Esnite. Is that the most unflattering and unpoetic name you've ever heard in your life? That's the name given to Joshobium, Adino the Esnite. So this is excerpted from chapter 8 in Wrestling Prayer. So if any of you have read Wrestling Prayer, you're going to recognize this. In our English vernacular, the nickname Adino the Esnite doesn't quite have the ring of poetry and beauty that many of us prefer. It sounds rather cartoonish and awkward. But in the Hebrew, it was anything but. It was something that sort of sounded like Etzenyadinyo. But it wasn't the sound of the name that evoked such deep affection between David and Joshobium. It was the meaning behind the name, Etzenadinyo. The Hebrew words packaged in this nickname are not typical. 
and therefore have proven challenging for scholars to fully pin down. But there are certain beautiful attributes of this name that speak volumes. The word etzen seems to denote a weapon of God, sharp to the dividing of joint and marrow, and strong to the destruction of darkness. While the word adinyao seems to create a picture of a king's glory, a king's crown, a king's badge of triumph, it's like the reward given a king after victory, hung like an ornament about its neck. Remember that line, hung like an ornament about its neck. And yet when these words coalesce together into one name, they become something even more powerful and demonstrative. They seem to become more than a name. They become a story. They shout the tale of a mighty man, hot and ardent with the flame of fiery love, lifting up a sharp, sharp, strong weapon, destroying the host of darkness and proving the glory of his beloved king. Etzenadinyao is no mere name. It's a name above other names. It is a name that boasts of triumph and boasts of indefatigable strength. It proclaims that the impossible has been accomplished. It says that one, one man has stood against 300 and vanquished every last one. And then it says if that was not enough, that he stood against 800 and single-handedly preserved his beloved king's throne. Such is the end of the wisdomite. Remember how we started this? We started by talking about trembling. Holy trembling. Hagios trembling is the name of this message. It's a trembling before the word of God, not to be above it, not to be a chum next to it, but to submit to the king's maxims. When he brings the mashal, mashal to our souls, we tremble. And we say, you are right, and this is wrong. Change me thoroughly. Purge me. Do whatever you must. And he says, will you receive the pashal? Will you receive the, the rod of correction? Will you receive the suffering? the affliction and the tribulation that I must bring against you to remove the chaff, to remove the dross from your life, to bring the foolishness out and to remove it from your existence. Will you allow me to do that? Your way is the right way. Such is the end of the wisdomite. What is he? He's Etzenadinyao. He is the strong weapon in God's hand, the ornament hung around God's neck. The reward of his suffering. It is the way we honor our king. It's to be the son of the wisdom. Or to be the, the end, I'm sorry. The wisdomite. The hackmanite. It's to become that, not the fool. The wisdomite. The hackmanite. The end result of trembling before the king's maxim. Now remember that ornament hung around his neck? This is what it says in Proverbs multiple times. The Mashal of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know Chachma and Musar. You already know that. Now listen to this. My son, hear the Musar of thy father. Hear the correction. Hear the instruction. Receive the suffering. Receive the affliction from your father. They shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck, which isn't a negative statement, by the way. That is honor, glory. Hakma is the principal thing. Therefore, get hakma. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. You get hakma and musar, and you get life abundance. And what it's known as is glory. It is an ornament of grace. How do you want to honor your king? You honor him by submitting to his maxims. 
You know what I think every single one of us should do this week is read through Proverbs. And I want you to tremble before it. And I want you to realize it's not a Chinese proverb. It's not a Hindu proverb. It's God's maxims that have divine right and authority to rule and control your life. And it will drive out the foolishness from you. When God speaks, if there's anything in the Proverbs, anything that rebukes your life and corrects it, you say, yes, Lord, whatever it is. And then I want you to realize that all of Scripture is useful for this same training. All of it is useful for Hakma and Musar and for Bin Amir Benah so that you would literally grasp in your soul that which is necessary to make this Christian life work. Father, somehow take that and make it useful. Bring glory to Jesus Christ who has been made unto us that hakma, that wisdom, who is in fact our musar and our correction, and who has actually given us the bina mirbana, the ability to understand the understanding, to read scripture and to receive it, to reckon it and to take it. Change us, and may we have a holy trembling. And may we be willing, as you were, to find our way to that feeding trough. Lord, you are the one that is once again wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a fatne. You are food for the nations, and may we give up our lives to allow our lives to be spent to become food for those around us. Train us in your way, your good and holy way. It's in the precious name we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.